All right, glad you guys are here. If you're joining us online, we're glad that y'all are with us also. Uh, my name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3, one little word, uh, business. Um, uh, we're all, if you're like me, you're kind of getting tired of all the rules. Um, but we need you to follow them. Nobody's in trouble. We just need you to follow the rules particularly the ones that are connected to this children's area over here. Um, That's not COVID, that's overall safety. So the the rules, you know, we don't want anybody on this side of the building that doesn't have children, Um, whether it's raining or cold or whatever, we need you to come in kind of the main door and then just follow the directions of the children's staff. And then uh, for pickups, if we could just have one parent go over there, that just helps Again, that's not just a kind of a COVID thing that helps us with overall security, knowing who's there and who needs to be there. So again, there's lots of, I know there's lots of procedures and protocols, and we're all kind of getting procedured and protocoled out, and we appreciate you guys doing your best to follow those, and I just encourage you to keep doing that. And then one other public service announcement. So there's a moth in here, and it's the size of a small airplane. And so if you see it, you can kill it. It was dive bombing people at eight, the eight o'clock service. So I will see if you see something. To me, it looks like a bird because the spotlight's so bright. All I can see is the silhouette. It's not small, and it's okay to kill it. And it's okay to kill it in a sanctuary. God will be fine if you kill it. So Zechariah three. So February, the night, it's the night of February 15th, 519 B.C. Zechariah has eight visions in a row. Boom, 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 boom. And every one of those divisions, or visions, excuse me, is designed to encourage the people who've returned from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So as we're reading this fourth vision today, that's what I want you to have in mind. How would this have encouraged them? And then we'll talk about how hopefully... It can encourage us. We'll do this in two parts. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. So uh, setting heaven, Zechariah sees this picture of something going on in heaven, and it feels like a courtroom scene. We have Zechariah, or excuse me, Joshua, who is the high priest at the time of the vision. He's the defendant. The angel of the Lord is a judge. And we've said the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. It's the pre-incarnate son of God. Jesus before he was born. Jesus in the Old Testament. We're just going to call him Jesus. He's the judge. And Satan is the prosecuting attorney. So he's there to bring charges against Joshua and present those charges to Jesus, the judge. But before the trial can even get started, 
God the Father steps in and he rebukes, which is a really strong word, he rebukes Satan. And he says, because I've chosen Jerusalem, this guy, Joshua, he's like a burning stick snatched from the fire. So because I've chosen Jerusalem, that's a really important phrase. That's covenantal language. So what the father is saying is because Joshua is one of my people, I've rescued him from judgment. If a stick is on fire and you pull it out of the flame, you keep it from being consumed. He's rescuing Joshua from judgment. Why? Because Joshua is one of his people. We've said as we've looked at Zechariah and Ezra and Haggai, it's important for us to remember the Jewish people were being punished and they were punished for 70 years. But that punishment was part of a, it was in the context of a bigger and broader relationship. If you go back and read Deuteronomy 28, God lays out to Moses and the people way, way back way back, before, way before, hundreds of years before what we just read. And he says, if you are obedient, here are the blessings that you can expect. This is, co- this is in the covenant. This is what you can expect me to do if you're obedient. And then he says, if you're disobedient, here's what you can expect. Here's how I'm going to respond. And one of the, it's called a curse. One of the curses, one of the punishments, or one of the judgments, whatever, whatever word you want to use, was the exile. I'm going to bring a nation against you and they're going to take you out of the land that I've given to you and they're going to scatter you all around the world. That's what they're going to do. So when that happened, when the the Jews were exiled in 586 BC, that was done in the context of relationship. That didn't mean God was done with the people. Some, Some Jews thought that. They thought God had broken his promise to them. He hadn't. He'd actually kept his promise. He said, if you behave in a disobedient and faithless fashion, then I'm going to judge you. I'm going to punish you. And that punishment is going to be getting kicked out of the land. That's part of relationship. It didn't mean God was done. It meant God was faithful. And then in Deuteronomy 30, God says, if you repent, then I'm going to bring you back. So just like the exile was part of relationship, so the return was part of a relationship. All of this is done in this broader category of covenant. That's not a word that we use. But that's what it, it, it's it's relationship that's been that God has said, here's what it looks like for you to be my people and for me to be your God. If you're faithful, I'm gonna bless you. If you're persistently disobedient, I'm gonna punish you. One of the expressions of that punishment is exile. And if you repent while you're scattered all over the place, I'm gonna gather you all back. So here in Zechariah 3, this vision, God says, because I've chosen Jerusalem, because Joshua is one of my people, I'm applying the covenant to him. So I'm bringing him back. And he has been forgiven. He's been rescued. He's like this burning stick. I pulled it out of the fire so it doesn't get consumed. He's been acquitted, if you like that word better. Forgiven. So now we have Joshua forgiven, but still wearing really filthy clothes. And the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus, says to the other angels, take off his filthy clothes. And he says to Joshua, I've forgiven your sins and I have fine clothes for you. So that's a picture of forgiveness. Taking off the filthy clothes and putting on the fine clothes. And the angels are doing all that work. Joshua is not doing it. 
The angels are doing that work because Jesus has directed them to do so. And then Zechariah gets into the act and he says, and put a new turban on his head. Exodus 28 gives the outfit for the priest. And part of the outfit is a turban. And on that turban is a medallion. And that medallion says, holy to the Lord. So to me, what we see here is Zechariah, or excuse me, Joshua is forgiven. Then he's got new clothes on. And then he's recommissioned to his work as a priest. That's the turban with the medallion, holy to the Lord. So Zechariah is not just forgiven, or excuse me, Joshua is not just forgiven. He's also commissioned. So really the question is, is Joshua in this vision, is it just about Joshua, the one guy, or does Joshua represent a group? I think Joshua represents a group. I think he represents all of the priests. In Ezra 2, we read about all the guys that come back from Babylon. They make that 900-mile journey, and there's about 42,000 of them, and 4,289 of them are priests. That's 10%. That's a lot. 4,289 priests return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And I don't think any of them had ever actually done their job. If they, if they had any priest uh, that participated in the first temple, the, the youngest you could be was 20. So this is 70 years after that, so they're 90. I don't think there's a whole lot of 90-year-olds that make the trip. Maybe there's a couple. But in, in my mind, none or, or maybe just a, a handful have ever actually done their job. They're priests because of the family they're born into, but they've never actually done the work. And so here they are, the temple's being rebuilt, and maybe they're kind of wondering about it. Again, they, they know that they're priests. They've been told that they've been priests, but they've never actually done priestly things. And here, before they get started, here's this vision. You're forgiven. The, the things that sent you into exile, the reason I judged you for 70 years, all those things have been forgiven. The, the sins that you committed while you were here, in this land for 16 years when you didn't rebuild the temple and you were supposed to, when you just focused on your own houses and I sent the drought, which led to the famine, that season of futility that we saw in Haggai, all that's been forgiven. And you've been recommissioned to do this work. How encouraging that would be for guys who'd never actually done the job. They knew that was part of who they were, but they never actually done the job. How encouraging would that be? Second half of the vision Then the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So now we see, I think what we have here is Jesus is explaining. So here are the implications of the fact that you've been forgiven and commissioned. And there are near-term or immediate implications, and then there's long-term implications. The immediate The near term, Jesus says, if you guys will be faithful, or if you'll walk in my ways, walk in the Old Testament was a different way of talking about your lifestyle. So he's talking about their personal life. In your personal life, if you'll be faithful, if you'll be obedient. And then he says, if you'll 
follow my requirements, which is a technical term for the work of a priest. So in your personal life, if you'll be faithful, and then in your work life, if you'll, if you'll fulfill the role, the work of a priest, if you'll do both of those things, then here's what you'll get. You'll have authority in my house. That's the temple. You'll have authority in my house and you'll have access to heaven. Just like these angels that you're seeing, you'll be just like that. You'll have that kind of access to the Father. Now, the role of a priest was to be a mediator, an intermediary. He stood, a priest stood between the people and God and helped connect the two. That was their major job, to help connect God to people and people to God. And so before you start your job, which is supposed to be connecting God to people and people to God, if God says to you, hey, if you'll be faithful in your personal life, you'll be holy there. If you'll be obedient in your work life, you'll do what Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers says about being a priest. You'll do the sacrifices and and all the liturgy, all the things that go with being a priest. If you'll do those things, then here's what you can expect. You're going to have influence and authority in the temple, which is where people gather. And you're going to have access to heaven, which in in their mind, that's where God lives. That's pretty good. If your job is to connect people to God and God to people, and you're told, hey, you can do that, that's what's in front of you. That's going to be really encouraging as you begin your work. And then they, they get this, this, this word about the future. It's called a messianic prophecy. It's talking about who we know to be Jesus. On this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we say Jesus is the Messiah. So those last few verses are talking about Jesus. One of, the, one of the, the labels that was given to the Messiah in the Old Testament was branch. So God had made a promise to David, and he said, you'll always have a, de- a descendant on the throne. But for 70 years, there hadn't even been a throne. There hadn't even been a country because the Jews have all been in exile. So nobody's been sitting on the throne because there was no throne to sit on. And so some of the people were beginning to go, is that, like, is that done? Is that promise just, is it dead? Isaiah 11, 1, it's one of the verses that we read during Christmas time. says that out of the stump of Jesse, Jesse was David's dad, out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot will come, a, a branch will come from the root and bear fruit. There's this picture of, you can think about David's family as a tree that it got cut off 70 years ago because there hadn't been any kings in 70 years. And then to hear my servant, the branch, that's going to make them think, oh, God's going to honor his promise to David. He's going to send us a new king who's from the family of David. That idea of my branch speaks to royalty and to what the Messiah would do. That last verse, sit under, uh, uh, you'll invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and your fig tree. That speaks of peace and prosperity. If you can invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and your fig tree, then that means you can afford to have a vine and a fig tree. And if you can sit, then that means you're not, at war, and you're not being harassed. You can actually rest. Two of the things the Messiah was going to bring were peace and prosperity. So you have this idea, again, the, the Messiah, the son of David, or a descendant of David, he's going to come. God hadn't forgotten that promise. There once again is going to be a king on the throne from David's family, and he's going to bring peace and prosperity. That's what they were expecting. But then tucked right in the middle is something that's a little bit different. The stone I put in front of Joshua, what is that? So the priest, one of the things they wore was a vest, and that vest had 12 jewels on it, and each jewel had written on it one of the, the names of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the high priest is the only person who can enter the most holy place, 
And when he does, he wears this vest, and it's a picture of him bringing all of the nation to God. Again, that idea of connecting God with people and people with God. When he wears this vest, it's symbolic of him bringing the entire nation before God. At this point, there's only one tribe left. It's just Judah. So we got this one stone, and the, my translation says it has seven eyes. That word eyes is, can also be translated facets, which I like better. When I think of a stone, I can think of the facets of a stone. Seven is a number of completeness. So there's only one, but to me, it represents all of the people of God. And the Messiah, this branch, he's going to bring it before the Lord. So that's new. We knew the Messiah would be a king. We knew he'd bring, bring, bring uh, peace and prosperity. Now we have him doing priestly work. It says he'll forgive the sins of the people, the sins of the people be removed in a single day. That's, that's Good Friday talk. When because of Jesus' death and resurrection, all of our sins are forgiven. So those last few verses, I believe, are looking forward to Jesus. So these, if you're listening to this and you're one of those 42,000-something returnees, what you're hearing is the priests, the guys who God has designated to be mediators, to bring us to God and God to us, they've been forgiven and they've been commissioned. And then you may also remember Exodus 19.6, which says all of us are, we're a nation of priests. And so this vision applies to all of us, 42,000 people who've returned. God's forgiven all of us of the sins that we committed that led to the exile. God has acquitted all of us of the things that we did over the last 16 years that led to the famine and the, the drought and the futility. We all have new clothes on, and we've all been recommissioned to this role as God's people, a priest to the nations. First Peter says you're a priest also, if you're a Christian. If you follow Jesus, First Peter 2 says we are a royal priesthood. We're a kingdom of priests. And so Zechariah 3 applies to you as well on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. What has God done for you and what has God done for me? He's forgiven us, and he's commissioned us. We won't have time to talk about commissioning today, so we're just going to talk about forgiveness. God forgives us. So this picture of Joshua, that's true of you. You can put yourself in Joshua's shoes. You can see yourself as a defendant who's on trial before the Lord. And Satan is there, and he wants to accuse you. But if you're in Christ, if you're following Jesus, you placed your faith and your trust in him, then before the trial even starts, it gets shut down. Satan doesn't get an opening statement. He doesn't get to bring any charges against you because of God has declared you righteous. So if this is a struggle for some of you, for some of us, when we think God, we don't think the defender of our heart, what we just sang. We think accuser. We think of God as someone who sits in heaven and he has his eye on us and he's ready to zap us when we sin. That's what he does. We screw up and he zaps us. We see him much more as an accuser than a defender. Satan, that word means accuser or adversary. And unfortunately, some of us apply that to, to God, to our Father. And it makes it difficult for us to recognize that we're forgiven. If that's you, 
if in your most honest moment, if you would say when you think of God, you tend to think of him more as the guy who's putting his thumb on you, the guy who's accusing you, pointing out everything that you do wrong, versus your defender, I want you to read Romans 8 this week. I want you to read it three or four times. I want you to read it slow. Some of it can be a little bit confusing. There's some really good things in there. Romans 8.1 is a verse many of you know. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we hear that no condemnation, we tend to think, well, that means I don't have to think bad about myself. There's no thinking bad about those. Uh, There's no thinking bad about myself if I'm in Christ Jesus. And there's some truth to that. But that verse is, that's not what it's talking about. It's a law court kind of verse. It's a courtroom verse. Condemnation is a courtroom word. To be condemned is to be found guilty and to be sentenced to punishment. And we know that the wages of sin is death. So for us to be sentenced to death, that's what it means to be condemned. And Paul says in Romans 8, if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. You can't be found guilty. And then at the end of Romans 8, he tells us why. He says, who will bring a charge against those God has chosen? There's that relational covenant language again. If you're in Christ, then he's chosen you as his people. And he has a, he's, there, there's terms of the relationship. And part of those terms is you've been found not guilty. You've been justified, declared righteous. It's the same word. Justified and righteous are the same word. You've been found in the right. And then Romans 8 goes on to say, it's God who justifies. He's the one who says, you're not guilty, then who is the one who condemns? Nobody. If God is the judge and the judge has said, you're not guilty, you're acquitted, you're a burning stick snatched from the fire. If the judge has said, you're right with me, then who's left to condemn you? Nobody. There's nobody left. The only one that matters is the judge. But unfortunately, for many of us, we don't live in that reality. We don't live that way. We don't live as ones who've been declared in the right, on the right side, because we're in Christ. Not because we're righteous, not because we've never sinned. No, we we were guilty. But because of the faithfulness of Jesus... God declares us justified when we put our trust in him. Do you see God as the defender of your heart or as the accuser of your heart? The Holy Spirit absolutely convicts us of sin, 100%. He convicts us of sin in order to lead us to repentance and righteousness. That is not the same thing as declaring us guilty. Not even close. Another reason it's difficult for some of us to receive forgiveness. We know in our heads, I've been declared righteous. I've been justified. I've been, I'm not guilty. And I know that. I, I know that's the verdict. But we still feel like we're wearing dirty clothes. We don't realize that we get a new wardrobe. We take off our flesh We put on the Spirit. We're new creations. 
What's old is gone. What's new has come. And it's difficult for us. When we think forgiveness, a lot of us think erase with a pencil, like erasing. But if you erase with a pencil, you can still see the outline of what you've written. And that's how we see ourselves. I know in my head I've been forgiven. But I still kind of carry the shame and the guilt of that sin around. It may be something I'm really ashamed of from my past. It may be something that's an ongoing struggle for me. And I don't live in the fullness of forgiveness. I don't realize I've got new clothes. New Testament example, Lazarus. He's called out of the grave. He's called back to life, but he's still wearing his grave clothes. And Jesus says to his friends, take the grave clothes off of him. He's not dead anymore. We know in our minds we've been forgiven. We've been called out of the grave, but a lot of us still walk around with our grave clothes on. We haven't heard Jesus say, take the grave clothes off. We don't recognize it's not like an eraser. It's like white out. Our sins have been blotted out. God doesn't see them anymore. And it's difficult because other people do. They remind us of our sin. God doesn't, but they do. And so sometimes it's easy to take that on. Some of us still live with the consequences of our sin. God forgives us of our sin, but he doesn't always remove the consequences. And so some of us are still experiencing the consequences of sin that has been forgiven. And that can make it hard for us to remember that we've been forgiven because we're still living with some of the baggage. And that's real and that's difficult. I get it. What I need you to hear this morning is God's forgiveness is complete and it's full. Ezekiel says that he sprinkles us with clean water and our hearts are clean. And Jesus says it's out of our hearts that we live. Your hearts have been washed completely if you're in Christ. doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. It's not, it's not about being perfect. It's about recognizing what God does with our sin, and he blots it out. 1 John says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. Again, for some of us, that's a difficult concept to live out, and that causes us to, to relate to God more as servants than as sons and daughters. It causes us to kind of disqualify ourselves from ministry or things God might ask us to do. Who am I? I'm not worthy. And we kind of do all that poor mouthing. There's no room for that in the kingdom of God. And it's not because of anything in us. It's because of the verdict that he has declared. Think about for Joshua and for those priests. If they walk around like their clothes are still dirty, when Jesus has said, I've given you a new set of clothes. That's not humility. that's wrong. It's disrespectful. It's a denial of what God has done for them. Don't hear that as guilt, but as a call to embrace what it means to be forgiven. This is how we're going to close. So um, we're going to have some ministry, and if you're, we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. Some of you came in with things that you want prayer for, and we want to pray with you. But I want a, a specific call to those who wrestle with this idea of being fully forgiven. If you know in your mind that God has forgiven you, but if you were honest, you would say you still walk around with some guilt and some shame, then we want to pray for you. And what we're going to do is we have some water, and it's not magic. It's from the tap, but it's just a symbol. It's a symbol of what God does in our hearts, sprinkles us with clean water. And so you can come here and kneel.
and I'll put a little, make a little cross on your hand with that water, and I'm just going to pray that God would speak to you in a way that you would understand that you are completely forgiven and that you would not, you would recognize there's no condemnation for you anymore. You've been declared innocent. You've been declared not guilty. You've been acquitted. You've been set free. There's nobody left to condemn you. We'll have some prayer teams in this uh, room out and to the right. If you want to engage with somebody, they've got water too, and they'll pray with you as well. And if you're comfortable doing that, you can slip out and connect with one of those teams. Or if you have something else that you want prayer for, I would encourage you to go and share with those guys. So I'm going to say a prayer. I want you to follow along with me, and then I want you to respond. You can either come here and kneel, or you can go to the, the room next door. Holy Spirit, I pray that for every student, every child, every adult in this room right now, everybody who's watching online, that for those of us who are in Christ, we're following you, Jesus, I pray that we would know what it is to be declared not guilty, that we would live in the fullness of of your forgiveness. We would know what it is to be wearing fine clothes that you give us. I pray for those who are still laboring under shame and guilt that in these next few moments with just the simple act of tap water on your, the back of your hand, that that would break something in people and that they would be able to receive the cleansing of their hearts. God, I pray for any who are in this room or online who are still guilty. They've never placed their faith and their trust in you. They're standing before you as the judge based on their own track record and behavior. I pray that today would be the day that they would realize they don't have to do that anymore. If they would put, they would repent of their sins. They would ask you to forgive them. And then they would hear you declaring them righteous and not guilty as well. God, I pray for those who get worked over by the enemy. All of the accusations just wear them out and wear them down. Would you protect hearts and minds? Would you remind us of the truth of what you've done for us? and who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys respond quickly, and Bo will dismiss us in a few minutes.